Okay. Second weekend in a new year. Um, the funny thing about New Year's is that while, I don't know about you, while the 31st of December and then the 1st of January more or less feel like the same day, uh, we, one of these trending phrases that we hear everywhere is New Year's resolutions. What are your New Year's resolutions going to be? No, I'm not going to ask you what they are and I'm not going to ask you if you kept last year's because um, that wouldn't be pleasant for any of us. But just to make us all feel better, here's a bit of, here's a, bit of a list of uh, some of the New Year's resolutions that I'm sure we've all failed uh, over our life experience. Things like reinventing our look. Uh, maybe this year we want to spend less time on social media. Uh, maybe we want to travel more. Maybe we want to stop eating chocolate. Uh, maybe we want to budget better. Um, maybe we want to eat healthier, start exercising. These are all things that are in a top 10 list of New Year's resolutions that we all fail. Um, and I don't know how the story goes for you guys, but for me, when I think of like, okay, New Year, I need to get a new regime in place. I need to start eating healthier, start exercising. It goes something like this. I will look at my calendar and think, January 1st, all right, it's time to do the weekly shopping. Go to the supermarket. Instead of reaching for my favorite Cocoa Pops cereal, I'm thinking, that's got way too much sugar in it. We need to start eating healthier. So we go for that really nice muesli that is on special because you don't want to spend too much more than Cocoa Pops. And then you're thinking, all right, I need to uh, get the fitness tracker app on my phone. So when I go for a walk or a run, my phone can tell me uh, how good I should feel about myself. Uh, maybe you might even do something crazy and get a gym membership. Okay, well, let's calm down. Because three months into the year, you go, oh, Cocoa Pops is on special, and I don't know if I can really afford that gym membership. And the fitness tracker app was really cool. Uh, it, like, tracked where I went twice. And, um, yeah, I was like, wow, I've run a total of 45 minutes. Awesome. And then after that, it's like, well, it's too heavy in my pocket when I'm running anyway, so I leave it behind. Long story short, three months into the year, our New Year's resolutions are not exactly what they could be. And um, the funny thing is, we keep being encouraged to make these New Year's resolutions. And I wonder why that is. Do we have any ideas as to why we do these New Year's resolutions? Well, my theory is, is that we, as human beings, we want to progress. We want to feel like we're getting better. We want to know what we're capable of, what we could be. And we want to know where, where our lives could be, what they could look like uh, by the end of that year. And why do we want to do that? My theory, again, is that it makes us feel like we're achieving something. It makes us feel like we have a purpose. We're getting up each morning and we're like, right, I can smash this New Year's resolution in the face today, and by the end of this year, I'm going to be that much more awesome than I am this year. And here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus, I kind of want to take the same approach to my relationship with him. I want to figure out and think to myself, what could my relationship with Jesus look like? Not be stuck looking at, okay, what is it currently, but what could it be? By the end of this year, what could my relationship with Christ look like? And as we continue our journey through um, the first part of Luke's gospel today, I want you to think about what could your relationship with Christ be like by the end of this year. And it doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual journey, 
uh, whether you're just sussing this stuff out, whether you've known about Jesus, you know kind of who he is, or whether you've been on a journey with him for a really long time, asking yourself the question, where could my relationship with Christ be by the end of this year, I think is a very valid point. You know, we know the certainty of Jesus Christ, what he came to do, God's son sent to this earth to redeem us from our sins. And, you know, the last couple of months we've been going through the first part of Luke's gospel, where Luke, the whole reason he wrote that book was to say, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And so the certainty of Jesus Christ is clear, but the question is, how can we take our relationship with him forward? And how can, how, what might our relationship look like by the end of this year? So to help us do that, we're going to be talking today about a guy called John the Baptist, crazy old John. And uh, so we're going to dig into a little bit about what this relationship with Christ is. Now, I don't know about you, um, but when I first heard the phrase relationship with Jesus Christ, I wasn't really sure what to picture because oftentimes we think a relationship with someone, it's going to take uh, some communication, right? It's going to take me kind of sitting down, getting to know someone, knowing what they like, uh, having a conversation with them, uh, maybe, you know, going out and seeing a movie together. And, uh, and so I kind of think to myself, well, how do I, like, what does that look like with Jesus Christ being somebody who was the man that came to earth as God in the flesh and then rose, defeated death, and then his Holy Spirit is now living in me. What is a relationship dynamic in that? Like, how do we figure that out? And that's what John the Baptist is going to help us out a little bit with here tonight. Um, So, beginning of Luke's third chapter, Luke chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles or your devices, have a look in that first bit of chapter 3. That's where we're going to be taking off from. Uh, So, If you've been following along with us a little bit, we've been talking about uh, some of the stuff that's been happening in the first two chapters of Luke, and now we're in the third chapter, and I just want to bring some really quick context before we dive into where this passage is and what's going on with crazy old John here. Um, So, it's set in around the year AD 28, 29, uh, and this is during the time of Roman occupation. The Roman Empire is everywhere. And there is a small conglomerate of people hanging on in the Middle East, and they're the Israelites. Now, the funny thing about the Israelites is that their whole nation worked on the dynamic of God being able to speak to his chosen people. The Israelites were his chosen people. And God used prophets throughout thousands of years of the Israelites' history in the Middle East to tell his people what he wanted them to know. Now, the funny thing is about where we are in AD 28, 29, where we're going to start reading about John, is that there hadn't been a prophet for 400 years. There'd been silence. And you can imagine God's people, who are used to hearing from a prophet every now and again what God wants them to know, are feeling a little bit uneasy. Not only that, but in that 400 years of silence, They've been conquered by nation after nation after nation, and here they are being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so if we dig into the third chapter of Luke, uh, after 400 years, there's this guy named John, and he knows that he's called by God to be a voice shouting in the wilderness, and that's exactly what he was. So if we have a look at that first, uh, that first little section in chapter 3, 
Skip down to chapter, uh, verse 4. It says, um, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled, the mountains and hills will be made level, the curves will be straightened, and, th- and the rough places made smooth. Then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. And that was kind of like the encapsulation of who John the Baptist was. What he knew he was called on this planet to do was to prepare the way for uh, the Lord's coming. And while John the Baptist was a crazy guy, like he never washed, he was always wearing camel's clothes, he ate grasshoppers, uh, he lived out in the desert, people would have thought he was a little bit bonkers. The funny thing is, is that he was actually a really inspiring reformer. For these people that had not heard anything from God in over 400 years, here's this guy in the desert saying, guess what? God's coming. His salvation is near. And people were primed to hear that. You can imagine, kind of like the way that we are at the beginning of a new year, where we're like, ah, fresh start, New Year's resolutions, I'm going to kick this year in the face. There was a lot of people with that same sort of feeling. They were like, there's got to be something going on here because all of a sudden there's a guy that is telling us that God's salvation is really close. And, uh, and that was John's calling. And while John's job, while his job on this planet was really unique in preparing people for the coming salvation of God, for the Messiah, in many ways he's a picture of what our relationship with Christ could look like. And not that he lived in the wilderness and ate grasshoppers and the rest of it, but in that he was a genuine partner with what Christ was going to do on this planet. He was, he was there to introduce Christ in his town and in his day. And in the next few moments that we've got together, I just want to dig into two things. John is really unique, and he's got some unique stuff going on in the way that he went about his job But there is stuff that we can learn from that unique job that he had to figure out what our relationship with Christ could look like. And that's really simply a Jesus-centered partnership. In a nutshell, our relationship with Christ should be a Jesus-centered partnership. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to fly, absolutely fly through this next part of the chapter just so that we have it in our heads Uh, It should be up on the screen, hopefully. Um, And let's just... So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to read really quickly through this. So we're going to start at verse 7. So follow along if you can. Uh, When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from God's coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, "We're, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children from Abraham from those very stones... Even, the, even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yet every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, well, what are we going to do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be that Messiah. 
John answered their question by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. And John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Woo! All right, so a Jesus-centered partnership. One of the first unique things about John was his unwillingness to seek human approval. We kind of get that. His opening line is, uh, read it with me, you brood of snakes. I feel like that's not the most politically correct thing to say if you're trying to get a crowd of people's attention. What does that mean for us, not willing to, uh, not willing to cater for people's approval? Where did that come from? Why, what gave him the boldness and the courage to not go seeking human approval? It's a very human thing to go seeking for other people's approval. Well, it's simple. Earlier on in that chapter, it says, a word of the Lord came to John, and he knew that that's what he was going to do. It was all that he needed to be convinced that his purpose, his identity, his whole entire reason for being on the planet was to partner with Christ in what God was doing by announcing and introducing Christ. So our purpose in our relationship with Christ is to help... Wait a second. Yeah. Help prepare the hearts and minds of others for Jesus Christ. To encourage and to demonstrate and to live out what Jesus looks like. So I'd ask you, if you're going to be like, um, like taking notes or taking a, a memory snapshot of anything that happens tonight... I'd love it if you could keep these questions in mind. They're going to come up on the screen as we, as we reach them. But I want to encourage you to ask yourselves, where do we get our identity from? Because if it's from others, we're going to constantly be reinventing our look, trying to change who we are to seek other people's approval. But if our identity is a creation made in God's image, put on this planet by Him for a purpose, then that gives us incredible freedom just how John knew what his purpose was in being here on this planet, and that gave him incredible freedom. Gosh, he reinvented some fashion trends, he had a really interesting diet, he really didn't care what other people thought, he went around saying, you brood of snakes. So while John's unwillingness to go after human approval seemed very unique for his position at the time, it can teach us we need to get our identity from our purpose in Christ, not from others so that we're not constantly reinventing ourselves. It gives us incredible freedom so that we're free to introduce Christ in our town and in our day. What else? John was unique because he challenged the existing assumptions about who God's people were. You notice where we read that bit where it says, um, don't just say to yourselves, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. What, what was that all about? It was because God's people, they identified themselves as a, as a culture, as a people group, as children of Abraham. And that gave them that, that special status as God's chosen people. And it was through that that people thought to themselves, well, what do we need to, what do we need to change for? You know, we're God's chosen people. He kind of already likes us. We just, it just happens that way. Um, but his challenge to who God's people really were kind of shook people up. They didn't really understand what he was on about. And for us, that means that our partnership with Christ, it requires us to challenge ourselves 
and the people around us about where we're at. Where are we at spiritually? Where is the person sitting next to you at? Where is your, where's your family at? Where's your friends at? You know, it doesn't matter where we are, but if we don't know where we are and we go along gullibly thinking, well, okay, um, I go to church and I was, you know, born in a Christian family, so I, I guess that makes me Christian. I mean, I'm certainly not, you know, Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, so I guess I'm Christian. Well, no, not quite. It, where are we in our spiritual journey? You know, it, at, here at Door of Hope, we call it a hope pathway. Where are we on that? Are we a friend or an explorer, or a new Christian, growing Christian, or a Jesus-centered, others-focused Christian? But I encourage you, ask yourselves, where are we on our spiritual journey and what's our next step? Because knowing where we are in our journey enables us to introduce Christ. If we don't know where, if we don't know where we are, we don't know where we are in relation to Christ. It's kind of thinking like, if, uh, if you don't know where you're at and you don't know where your friend is at, how can you ever catch up to get to know them? So, if we know kind of a little bit about who Jesus is, how can we get closer so that we can introduce him to other people? How can we get to know him more so that we can introduce him into the hearts and minds of others? And John didn't make any assumptions about where other people were in their spiritual journey. He called them all with the same message. And that's quite simply, we read it before, um, to repent, to repentance. And in another gospel, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it wasn't just to repent, but also it was to prove by the way that you live that you have repented, that you've t- repented of your sins and turned to God. He's talking about bearing fruit. And that's another thing that made John's job unique. Crazy old John. It was his insistence that repentance, the idea of turning around from the destructive actions and decisions that we have made, repentance is more than just words. And our partnership with Christ, it has to be one of action. It it can't just stop at words. You notice the amount of people in that passage that were asking John, okay, what should we do? What, how do we, like, what do we do now? We've repented, we've been baptized in water. What do we do now? And it wasn't just God's people. We had tax collectors who were like the scum of the earth. We had soldiers who were presumably, possibly Roman. So the question is, what should we do? And the funny thing is that while these people are figuring out what they're going to do with their New Year's resolutions, John was offering them really super practical advice. You know, he was saying, look, if you have a lot of something, give it away. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have a lot of food, share it. Um, don't, take, don't give in to corruption. And, uh, and this is about, for us, this is about partnering with what Christ is doing on the earth, what he's physically wanting to outwork. Thing is, John knew, for a matter of fact, that when the Messiah came, he was going to completely shake up the way that people interacted with each other on a daily basis. See, the culture that, uh, that John the Baptist was in was one of looking down on those that had less, or looking down on those that had been denied opportunities, or who had been marginalized, the poor and the destitute. Whereas, here's John shaking things up because he knows that one person is coming who's going to completely revolutionize the way that we deal with people. And down the line, Christ said, what are the two greatest commandments in the world? He was asked that question. Christ says, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
and that everything about life here on this earth is summed up in those two commandments. So John knew that Christ was coming to shake these things up and revolutionize the way that we treat each other. So he was preparing people for that and saying, look, it's about giving what you have, giving in the abundance that you have, whatever it is, and helping out those that are in need and not giving in to things like corruption and uh, to to wrong decisions that are self-motivated, motivated by putting yourself forward. So you've got to notice that there's a bit of a different answer, you know, for each time that somebody asked, whether it was the soldiers asking, he was saying, look, you've got to be content with your pay and not use your position, uh, you know, abusively. Um, whether to the tax collector, he was like, well, you can't give in to corruption. You've got to, you know, keep your stuff together and keep it above board and legit. And I think what we can take from that is that it's really important that we use the, the positions of influence that we have. Being Christ is going to look different among all the people in this room. Being Christ among your friends in your job, in your school place, in your workplace is going to look different for each one of us. And those actions that Christ would take are going to look different. So our partnership with Christ, it requires us to ask, what can I do to put to put actions behind the things that I believe in my heart. So I guess the question that I want to, you guys to ask yourselves, and we can all ask ourselves this question, is how can I change what I do to reflect what I believe? This isn't about doing good works for the sake of being recognized by God. It's not, it's not about doing good things to make us feel better. It's about putting legs and feet and arms and hands on the things that we believe in our hearts. And the other thing that John was really unique in, in terms of a prophet, in terms of someone that could grab a crowd of people's attention and speak to them, was that he was consistently pointing towards Christ, pointing towards the one that he was preparing for. He wasn't asking people to always be listening to him. He was saying, look, that's fine, you can listen to me, but guess what? There is someone else who is coming, who is far greater than I am. See, the thing is, as we read, many people were starting to think that John the Baptist could be the Messiah. He was giving all these revolutionary ideas, he was well-spoken, and he was preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven was near. And many people wanted him to solve all of their problems. The Messiah had this picture, had this, uh, I guess, stigma that he was going to release them from Roman oppression, that he was going to conquer all their enemies, and that he was going to restore a relationship, a, uh, a kingdom where God was going to be at the head. After 400 years of them not hearing anything from God, they were like, this might be the guy. And can you imagine, can you imagine, can you put yourself in the shoes of somebody that is hearing that message for the first time? You'd be tempted to think that that was the person who was going to do it. But John knew what his position was, and that was someone who would consistently point towards the one who was coming, towards Christ. See, the thing was, while many people wanted John to solve all his problems, he was consistently saying, no, I can't solve your problems. Only Christ can do that. And that's the thing. Our partnership with Christ requires us to point others towards God. You know, we can speak of what Christ has done, just as John was speaking of what God was going to do, but only Christ has the power to actually do anything. 
You know, John could only baptize people with water as a symbol of their repentance and as a, as a token of forgiven sins. But Jesus, on the other hand, could cleanse the heart and soul and mind of people from their sin. He could completely restore them. You know, John could speak of the comfort that the Messiah would bring, but only Jesus could provide that comfort to the destitute and to the, to the hopeless and to the weak. And John could only threaten the hypocrites. John could only, uh, only I guess, smack talk the, the people of the day who were saying one thing and doing another. But only Christ is the one who will ultimately judge. And John ultimately could only encourage, he could only demonstrate and invite people. But Jesus Christ is the only one that can forgive and renew and transform. So my question to us all tonight is, do our lives point others towards Christ? Is what we do a, an arrow towards what Christ has done? and towards what Christ can do. You know, other people might see the way that we live, might hear what our ideals are and our morals, and they might want to copy that, or they might want to go, wow, you are living a really good quality life. What is it about you? And we could be, I don't know about you, but I've answered these questions before with things like, oh, well, I was just, you know, raised a certain way, and I believe, you know, what I believe, and it seems to be working out pretty well for me. And people will come to you again for answers when life hits them with these awful things that life always does because they might see that someone with a relationship with Christ is, seems to be coping, seems to be getting through and still seems to find joy even in the darkest circumstances. And people can come to you wanting you to solve their problems. But just like John the Baptist, we're not called to solve people's problems. We're called to point them towards the one who can, towards the one that can forgive, renew, transform, bring life. So do our lives point others towards Christ? Do they introduce Christ into the hearts and minds of those around us? So John the Baptist, he was a partner in doing what God wanted him to do where God wanted him to do it, in his town and in his day. He prepared other people to meet Jesus, to meet the person of Christ, God's only son, walking in the flesh. And while many people wanted John to solve their problems, John could only consistently point others towards Christ. And that is what our relationship should look like, a Jesus-centered partnership with him. So this year, we really need to be certain that we are called into such a relationship with Christ. It's a Jesus-centered partnership. And our mandate is simply to introduce Christ in our town and in our day, using the circumstances, the gifts and abilities that God has given us to bring his kingdom on this earth. So finally, just these questions that we have I really encourage you to write them down, to think about them as you, uh, as you head out of here, but where do I get my identity from? Where do I get my identity from? It's going to affect how free you feel, how free you are to share the things that God has done in your life. Where am I in my spiritual journey? Where am I and what's my next step? 
How can I change what I do to reflect what I believe? And finally, does my life introduce others to Christ? I encourage you to think about those questions. And we're just going to pray and we're going to sing some more songs. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness, for your greatness, for sending your Son to this earth to completely change us. We thank you that you have given us the unique position and ability and purpose to introduce others to you just the way that John the Baptist did in his town and in his day. I pray that we would be able to get to know ourselves from your perspective. That in our journey to know you more, that we would get to know how you see us. That we would ground our identity in you. I pray that we will constantly challenge ourselves about where we are and how we can move forward in our spiritual journey. Stir our hearts for the things that stir yours. I pray that we will change the things that we do to reflect the things that we believe. God, you came to this earth with a very revolutionary message, but it looked very practical and extremely helpful to the people that were crying, to the people that were hurting, to the people that were oppressed. Help us to introduce others to your son. Father, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for the Holy Spirit living inside us. We thank you for the peace and the joy and the fulfillment that a life lived in you brings. I pray that your grace and that your peace will abide in us as we point others towards you in our town and in our day. stand to our feet as we worship our God to offer our hearts to Him.